0: Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Joining us today is Dr. Matthew C. Scanlon, M.D., He is an associate professor of pediatrics at the Medical College of Wisconsin in Milwaukee, and he is a physician at the Children's Hospital of Wisconsin, specializing in pediatrics and pediatric critical care. Dr. Scanlon is the lead author of an article published in the June Supplement issue of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Value of Human Factors to Medication and Patient Safety in the Intensive Care Unit. The citation for this article is Critical Care Medicine 2010 volume 38, number 6, pages S90 to S96. Thank you so much, Dr. Scanlon, for being on the podcast today.
2: It's my pleasure.
1: Um, when I was reading through this whole supplement, looking for what I thought might turn into a good podcast, um, I know that they used your article to introduce it, and um, I thought that was very wise, and it, and it really discussed at a sort of 30,000-foot view patient safety issues, and what are some of the fundamental ways of making systems safer? And I, I very much like the way you organized this topic, and there were a lot of issues that were new uh, that we sort of, as average in, the average practicing member of the multidisciplinary team, are on the receiving end of, but often are unaware of what may be going on in the background in terms of how these kinds of systems can be organized. So I thought I'd let you begin giving us a, a broad introduction to this area.
2: Uh, That's great. Thank you for the positive feedback. So for the listeners, human factors engineering, which is also referred to as ergonomics, and uh, if you were over in Europe or Asia, they use the term ergonomics. In the States, we tend to think of that as comfy chairs and mouse pads, but they're used synonymously. Human factors engineering is essentially the science and practice of improving human performance, period. It can be used in agriculture, it can be used in manufacturing, and more recently it's been applied or starting to be applied in the healthcare setting. I think this is of particular uh, importance because of the growing awareness over the last decade of the issues around patient safety, and groups such as the Institute of Medicine have identified human factors engineering as perhaps one Tool set, if you will, or one discipline which can improve the safety of healthcare. Having said this, I think central to any of um, any discussion of human factors engineering is the need to understand systems. And as someone who spent a lot of time learning about physiologic systems, uh, I was really struck by how ignorant I was as a provider uh, for a good operational model of thinking about healthcare systems. So, I'd like to, if I could, provide a a model for the audience to think about as we have the rest of this discussion. And what I'd ask them to do is imagine uh, a blank piece of paper within the middle, a rectangle drawn that says "people," and that really encompasses everybody that is in a given uh, area of healthcare. So it could be the physicians, it could be the uh, respiratory therapists, the nurses, as well as the patients, the families, consultants, and all those people are interacting. And then if you think around that rectangle that we just drew, four other rectangles, one at each corner of the first rectangle, and I would label those. The second rectangle I would label tools and technology. The third rectangle I would label tasks the fourth rectangle I would label environment, and the last rectangle I would label organizations. And what those represent are really five major components of systems. Now, I should say there's lots of models of thinking about systems, but I like this because it's five elements, it makes a lot of sense to me, and I can remember the thing. And so the important thing here is that if you think about in an ICU environment, you have people who are using tools and technology to perform tasks that may be intubating a patient. It may be placing a central line. It may be managing a hypertensive crisis in an environment, in that case, that specific ICU, within an organization. And the organization represents the culture of that organization. It represents the financial decisions, funding, staffing decisions, um, the policies and procedures, and all the stuff that everybody brings to work each day. So central to the concept of human factors engineering is that you have a series of systems. You have a given bed in an ICU where you have people taking care of a patient by performing tasks, using tools and technology, and that's nested in the larger system of the ICU itself, which is nested in the system of a hospital wing, which is nested in the system of a hospital floor, and so on. The reason this is important is because one of the things that is well understood among the safety scientists and human factors engineers is that, that safety of the system really is dependent on the interaction of all those parts, and it's more than the sum of the part. So to give you an example and give your listeners an example, if you had a, the world's greatest intensivist with all the best technology and medical supplies working in an adult setting, caring for a patient with congestive heart failure and respiratory failure in the world's best hospital uh, and in a state-of-the-art ICU, you would expect to have perhaps relatively good outcomes. Now, all I have to do is change one element and drop in that situation a 24-week preterm infant as the patient instead of a 54-year-old patient with congestive heart failure. And simply by changing that and saying all other elements have to stay the same, the likelihood of having good, safe outcomes changes dramatically. Or to put it another way, take those same components, the world's greatest intensivist, state-of-the-art supplies, uh, the patient I described, and move them to the hospital parking lot instead of the ICU, and then ask them to do the same care. So just by changing either people, tools and technology, the tasks that are required, the environment, or making organizational changes, you can dramatically impact the performance of all those other elements, and as a result, the safety of that system.
1: Your, your focus here, as is the focus of many people who are taking their careers and trying to make ICU safer, you point here out here, that according to HFE Research Evidence. Improving human performance is not an issue of telling or forcing people to work harder, smarter, or with fewer errors. Instead, performance is improved by designing systems to support the physical and and cognitive work of the clinicians, and uh, you, you pointed out some of the other issues there, but one of the questions I had for you and and I know this has been written about recently in some of our prominent journals is reconciling the thoughts of personal responsibility versus systems, and I guess the issue that comes up with that a lot is hand washing. Uh, maybe if you could talk for a few minutes about that
2: sure, so I think there 's a uh, a range of ways to think about that. Let me start by saying that people are inherently fallible. Um, we make mistakes all the time. And so to, realistically, the only way you're going to have a healthcare system where there are no mistakes is to remove people from it. Um, so the challenge of HFE, or human factors engineering, is to understand the strengths and limitations of people or the range of providers in a given situation and then design the system to best support them. Now, the issue of individual responsibility, uh, I think, largely came about because there was a push a number of years ago for what was described as a blame-free environment. And that was probably a a grave miscalculation by some very well-intended people. And what I mean by that is that um, the thought was, well, patient safety is all a systems problem, and so there's no individual accountability. Yet, if you think of the systems model I described for the audience People are at the center of that. And so there is an expectation that the people that comprise that center box are perform up to their expectations or their accountability. And to that end, if we know that uh, with pretty impressive evidence that hand-washing is a great way of reducing hospital-acquired infections and reducing the burden of harm and, and mortality and people opt out, For perhaps really no good reason, then there's a compelling then there then there's some argument to say that they need to be held accountable. That's not to say that it's an either or proposition, and I think we like to jump into black or white or either or situations in healthcare. It's rather, in the context of that situation, one has an individual accountability or responsibility to follow rules that fit the situations, to perform well. Uh, to maintain your credentialing, and also to speak up to the organization when there's problems. The corollary to that is the organization, in theory, should be held responsible to facilitate optimizing the performance of the individual. So I think back to one of our old ICUs here in Milwaukee where all the sinks were in the back of the room. So for me, for the expectation to say that you have to wash your hands before you enter the room or as you enter the room was impossible because I had to climb over the patient through all the stuff in these small rooms to get to the sink in the back of the room to wash my hand. And just by virtue of the design of the room, it's already made me, it's set me up. So I had to break that, that expectation or violate that policy. However, as we've redesigned our ICU and put sinks in the front of the room, then if I just choose not to wash my hands because I don't feel like it, you could argue there's no one to blame but myself in that respect.
1: Uh, it was one of our topics that we were going to discuss at the end, but I thought I'd bring it up now, which is this concept of the checklist, checklist, sure, sure. and a patient safety checklist. Uh, I've tried to write about this myself a little bit. And again, you mentioned either or, and, and something like the checklist unfortunately can be somewhat polarizing. And the question I had for you about this was um, – uh, so that we talk about checklist fatigue and people mm-hmm. who checked off a box but it didn't really get done, and and so right. how would you integrate that into your paradigm for for enhanced patient safety?
2: You know, I'm not an expert on checklists, but uh, having read Gawande's, I told Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto. One of the take homes I brought from that was there is actually a science to and a skill set to writing checklists, and I think a lot of us, uh, maybe I'm just projecting for myself tend to be dabblers where we hear of a great idea and we say, I can do that because we're skilled, high achieving people. And, um, maybe we don't know enough to really do what we're setting out to do. So if you uh, read his chapter on checklist development, he talks about how much work goes into coming up with a good checklist. And I think that, you know, it's because there's such an imperative to improve patient safety in this country and throughout the world that we're desperate for a quick fix, which really flies in the face of the fact that healthcare is incredibly complex and it probably doesn't lend itself to very simple solutions. So the one-size-fits-all answer of a checklist for everything doesn't make any sense. And that really is a central tenet of human factors is understanding context of a given situation and then saying, okay, what makes sense in this situation? So to your point, if you have a 100 checklists that people are just going through and all they're doing is busy with, without thinking, checking boxes, it's unlikely to add any safety. But if you have a checklist that is used as a rigorous, okay, do step A before you advance to step B, understanding that there's an implication there that what happens if you need to go to step B and C really quickly because of an emergency? Does your checklist account for that? And that's the sophistication that I think we have yet in healthcare to appreciate. The good news is is I think there's a lot of science out there that can help us. The bad news is is It's all being used by other industries, and we've just
1: scratched the surface. No, and again, as as is brought up um, frequently with this, uh, where there's a comparison with the airline industry, the fact is it has shown to improve outcomes there. And and I guess that would be an example where you might say that the personal accountability really is there. If the pilot didn't do a step on the checklist and that led to an error, that's where the the environment was made safe, but that the uh, pilot ignored the situation sort of?
2: Right think there. Well, let's take the central line bundle as a concept, which really is essentially a checklist of steps that that there's pretty again compelling evidence to show that if you systematically follow components of a check line of a I'm sorry, in a central line insertion bundle, you will reduce the risk of hospital acquired central line bloodstream infection. So, a given intensivist really has a personal accountability to follow that. Now, there are always going to be exceptions. Maybe the patient's coding and there's no other access, and while a central line is not what I would recommend as your first line of access in a code, maybe you have to try and get one. And maybe that's the case where, because of extenuating circumstances, you need to violate that. But you're essentially saying, I am choosing, because of a risk-benefit trade-off, to put the patient at increased risk for central line infection because of these other circumstances, whereas most of the time the issue is well i just don't feel like it i don't believe it so i'm just opting out that's an individual decision that i think you know free will's present but you it opens up the door for being held accountable for those activities and it it reminds me of something else that Gawande described which was central or was present in all the aviation scenarios is the concept of discipline as a core value in the profession of aviation. And so that no one would entertain ever violating that checklist as a a pre-step, not because they're constantly finding problems, but because as soon as they do, they open up the door for increasing risk.
1: Well, um, there were a couple other key points that I really did want to get to in the podcast, because I thought there were such great points in your article. So I'll just start with one of them. So, um, One of the topics that you mentioned is this concept of people making errors and that the way the question can be phrased is rather than saying, why did that person make that mistake? Rather, it should be asked, what caused that mistake to occur? And you discussed topics like forcing functions. And I I thought maybe if you could talk about that for a few minutes, that would be great.
2: Sure. Um, Probably an example that would be familiar to many of your audience members is the uh, early days of anesthesia, where there was actually a fairly high uh, incidents of adverse events. And one of the issues was mixing up uh, oxygen and other gases in the operating room. And then you're thinking that you're giving the patient oxygen when you really you're administering some other gas unintentionally. And that's a case where really people are fallible. It's reasonable to say that someone could make that mistake. And We are all human. Our knee-jerk reaction when we hear of a mistake is to go, who could be so stupid as to do that? And my challenge to the audience is you're allowed to think it because it's hard to get out of that mental model, but quit saying it until you've at least asked the question, if all things are equal, if you put another person in that situation, maybe not yourself, but anybody else, could that same error happen? And if the answer is yes, it's really not a people problem. It's a system problem. And so... What HFE tries to do is to figure out where can we engineer or design in things to make it impossible for that error to happen, or if it happens, it mitigates the harm. A perfect example of that is, going back to the anesthesia world, they changed the fittings on the gas tanks and the gas lines so that oxygen tubing only went to the oxygen tank and the other gases were incompatible. Essentially, they knew that people were fallible, and they said, why even leave it up to free will that you have to always perform correctly and hook the things up correctly? When if we change the plug so it's impossible to hook it up incorrectly, which is the forcing function, you eliminate that error altogether, or the possibility of that error. Um, So you really haven't addressed the person And we talk about in the article, if you want to know if you're a system, regardless of what everyone's telling you, if you want to know where your safety solutions are focused, if most of your solutions are re-education, warning signs, uh, banners encouraging you to do the right thing, those are all people-focused solutions. Now, it doesn't mean that education is bad, but ultimately those are solutions that are targeted at trying to make you perform flawlessly, which just isn't going to happen.
1: So, so making the system foolproof, and you give another example about smart infusion pumps, although th- that itself, having lived through that, has been a bit of a two-sided issue as the technology has sort of been growing up, right?
2: If you think back to that systems model I started with, first of all, every time you change technology, you fundamentally change the entire system. So bringing in a new pump, which is seen as a panacea for medication errors, may actually make care worse depending on how that pump interacts with the other system components. Most of these technologies on paper sound like brilliant ideas. Uh, I'm a technology fan, but having said that, most of them were not designed with the end users in mind. So the the first time we introduced CPOE at our computer physician order entry at our hospital, it wasn't even designed to use with children's. Well, I'm in a children's hospital, and we do weight-based dosing, and yet the software was never written for that. So we had to help the vendor figure out how to do that. And here's a product where we're introducing technology which is is purported to improve safety, yet is not designed for the end users to use it correctly, which is, again, a core belief or premise of human factors engineering. Just as if your monitors are all placed high up and all your nursing staff are short, how can they manage the monitors? It's little things like that that seem stupid and yet can make a world of difference of whether people can perform well.
1: One of the other topics that you brought up that I really thought was fascinating because we've all, I would imagine, lived or observed something like this was your issues of rule violations. And if I could just mention the the example that I liked where you talked about a nurse in an emergent situation needing to borrow medication from another patient sure. to help save somebody's life. and I thought that was absolutely just a very sort of almost inspirational section of your manuscript, if you could talk about that.
2: Yeah, this concept of rule violations is something that... Um myself and some of my colleagues have been starting to dig into and certainly there's lots of other work outside of healthcare being done but there's this preconception in healthcare that if you violate a rule it's bad and and yet one of the things that is that is seen time and time again is that often where people introduce safety or help make situations more safe those often involve rule violations because The rules were written in a situation that didn't either really fit the care at all or didn't anticipate these exceptions. And so for the audience that hasn't seen the article, the the scenario is if a nurse has a patient who's having a sudden life-threatening event that requires a medication quickly and that medication is not readily available, either that needs to be tubed up from a central pharmacy or it's in a controlled medication cabinet, which is not a safety device. It's an inventory management device and often is a barrier to getting to meds in a timely fashion. And they know that in the locked drawer in the next room the the other patient they're caring for, there's that same dose of the exact amount of medication they need. You could imagine this case where the nurse is really facing a dilemma. Do I delay providing the medication, which may be life-saving to this patient, or do I pilfer the medication from the other drawer and then substitute it when I get the dose up that I originally ordered or was originally ordered for the patient that we started with. What's fascinating is if you talk to nurses candidly about this, they're violating rules constantly. And yet the majority of these rule violations are probably adding safety. The problem is then it becomes, the rules become very gray. When do you follow and when do you not? from an administrative or organizational leadership standpoint. The problem is when something bad happens, they look and they said, aha, the nurse was violating the rule. That's in some cause-effect relationship why there was a bad outcome. What they don't realize is these violations are going on all the time, and they just happen to make an association between the two. So where I've started to, and others have started to look at this, is that violations shouldn't be viewed as a personal failure. Now, that's not to say that there's not malicious or or malignant behavior, and that's a separate discussion. But to say, why are they asking the question, why is the staff having to make these violations in the first place? And it's entirely possible that the rules were never designed with the care environment in place in the first place.
1: So as you point out here, and and I'm just quoting from your paper because I like the way you said it, you said, from an HIV perspective, the concept of rules and violations has sort of multiple key components. You said, before considering punishment, it's important to understand whether the rules fit the clinical scenario or whether the violation added to safety, which you brought up before. And then you pointed out that the creation of rules and policies must involve the frontline staff who truly understand how care is provided. It's kind of like like in World War 1 where the generals were way back and didn't understand what was happening up front. Right. And then finally you say that that safety might be uh, better achieved through thoughtfully redesigning the systems of care delivery rather than continuing rules that might be in place that sort of can't be met or where there may be you're forcing uh, although it may be intermittently, you're forcing frontline healthcare providers to go around the rules or bend the rules to optimize patient uh, safety at that moment in time, right?
2: Right. And I think, at the risk of raising the ire of hordes of uh, risk managers, hospitals have reams of policies and procedures these days. And yet, the reality is, first of all, most of the staff cannot possibly know all of them. Secondly, um, there's this presumption that somebody in a back conference room who wrote this thing or even the committee that wrote the thing has any idea how care is provided. And it really puts front staff in a very difficult position where they're constantly forced with working around or violating rules um, to provide the best care they can or to follow the rules and yet potentially impact care adversely.
1: And doesn't this go along? I remember I read that it, like at Hopkins, they had uh, where one week they, they it would have adopt an administrator, and that the administrator would go around on rounds for specifically that purpose to see where there may be uh, either that rules are outdated or just don't apply anymore to a particular unit and way of optimizing things from the perspective of an administrator who may have a, a broader view than the frontline clinician.
2: Yeah, I, I think there's a tremendous role for the healthcare leaders who are making decisions which affect bedside care to spend a little more time at the bedside and see, one, the complexity of the work, and two, the, the implication of those rules for the bedside care. And now part of it depends on the trust between the leader and the bedside provider, but I think they could learn a lot by asking staff, you know, when are you forced to stretch rules around here and, and why is that? and use those, again, not as a sign of, okay, well, these are problematic nurses, but instead say, hey, hold on a second. Maybe this rule doesn't make as much sense as we thought it did when we first wrote it. Or, and then the question is, do we need to refine the rule? Do we need to throw it out? But none of those rules necessarily are adding safety. You know, that's, that's the last conclusion, as you said. If you, from an opportunity cost standpoint, if I can spend 100 hours – writing better rules or 100 hours designing better healthcare delivery, I put my money on the ladder every time.
1: One of the other major points uh, that, that you bring up which uh, I've read about when I've uh, been reading about prevention of burnout is this issue of teamwork's teamwork teamwork sure and teams. Um, and there were a couple points you brought up that I would like to raise and, and let you speak is, you know, sure. first of all, fr- from an intensivist standpoint, it's kind of one of the reason that many of us went into it is it's fun to be working as part of a team and you get to know your team well. But one of the things that you brought up that I've read in other articles was that the nurse perception and physician perception of the degree of collaboration may be very different. If you'd like to comment on that.
2: Correct. Um, I think this has been shown in a couple different environments. Uh, um, uh, Thomas's work, the work of Brian Sexton, uh, Peter Pronovost, I think, has dis- described this also, where if you ask providers, physicians, uh, how well their team is performing and collaborating, they often perceive a very high level of collaboration and communication. But that's really defined as the team does what I say. Um, whereas a bedside nurse has a very different perspective or definition of what collaboration is. It may be they listen to me. Instead of, I just do what the leader tells me. And so, even if you have that kind of gap, it raises the question of how effective is that team in the first place. I think that, like many of the other things we've touched on in this conversation, teamwork is, there's an entire science in, Eduardo Salas is one of many uh, people who spent a career describing uh, how best to uh, study teams train teams and we in healthcare are again appropriately saying hey we need to address this but we're jumping on this well let's just do team training which begs the question of do you even have the team the right teams in the first place and when i've talked to people in this uh, area about how best to train teams they almost always start by taking a huge step back and saying well what is the team supposed to be doing and do you have the right team members and do you have the right roles defined before you worry about training anyone. Because if you've got a bad system and you train people to perform in a bad system, you're, you're not going to have better outcomes.
1: Well, and and one of the other points I was going to bring up, and, and we have one of the attendings in my group has an interest in this, is that these skills can be teachable and they're separate from the cognitive uh, learning that has to occur to understand about managing a critically ill patient in terms of the science of, you know, uh, the, the pharmacology and, and all of that and ventilator right. management. But as you, I'm just going to quote them again from your paper, where you talk about, you know, backup behavior, team leadership, conflict resolution, and closed-loop communication. And I guess being as explicit as possible about, you know, what, what am I doing now? Okay, I'm demonstrating team leadership. I'm demonstrating conflict resolution.
2: Part of me, in, and this is where I get a little bit nihilistic about, um, the state of medical education. So much of what I think we need to improve uh, patient care has nothing to do with the Krebs cycle, which is unfair to the Krebs cycle. But <laughs> I think the challenge is that we really need to understand these core behaviors and sciences of how best to model communication. I've taken uh, individually to doing, uh, whenever when I had the luxury of it, so it's a non-emergent procedure, of doing a pre-procedural briefing. So this is what we're going to do go around and make sure everybody has a clear idea in the room of what's going on. It's not just the timeout which we're all supposed to be doing, but but really saying this is what I'm doing, this is what I'm worried about. I want to make sure we have this available. And then after the procedure's done, I take a couple minutes and do a debriefing. So how did that go? What went well? What didn't go well? What can we learn? And what's astonishing to me is how many times by going through some sort of process like that, one I build teamwork because i'm showing which is not just model or it's not just a, a gesture it's sincere on my part i want to know what the others are perceiving what did they observe that could improve the next one and what i was going to say is it's astonishing to me how many times we discover something that gee if we only had this in the kit or that on the cart that we use this would have gone a lot smoother and maybe if we can identify that and get that changed, then no one else has to go through the process that we just did.
1: And again, it, it the other thing, and, and I guess you you sort of alluded to it, but creating an environment where it's okay for everyone to speak up, where everyone's opinion is, is valid, where you're creating sort of a, a warm environment that's receptive to change, right?
2: Right. And, and I think this is a real cultural struggle for our uh, profession, there's something that's described as the authority gradient, which is really that, and this was seen in aviation where, and actually a lot of black box recordings of plane crashes, if they're analyzing your black box, you got a problem in aviation. <laughs> right. And one of the challenges is that they'll hear that the junior person identifies, the co-pilot or navigator identified something wrong, but they were really timid about expressing themselves like, gee, it looks kind of icy out tonight, when they realize the wings are icing up and the plane's going to crash if they don't do something. But they never say, historically, what they found is they weren't saying, hey, we've got a real icing problem we need to address. The corollary, and and this is more of a surgical analogy, which may fall short for many intensivists, but I think that they can relate to it is, if you were scrubbed in a case and you were a junior person and your surgeon was operating, how many of those people in the room would say to them, don't cut that, that's the wrong vessel? And when I pose that to surgical PAs and scrub nurses and others, they are like, I would never say that to Dr. <laughs> and such." Jeez, yeah. Well, if they are not willing to speak up, then basically what they're saying is, I'm more f- afraid of this guy that I would rather something bad happens to the patient when I recognize it and put my butt on the line with this person.
1: Right. It's like the same question, you know, if you see that they broke scrub, you know, who's going right. to say, okay, you, you have to step it, out now or something.
2: And I'm sure that we, if we looked in our ICU environments, similar situations exist where we're missing something or we're perceiving situations as the, in, the attending intensivist, and yet there are people that have knowledge that would probably improve care, but because of our relationships, they're afraid to speak up. And, as long as that's present, you don't have teamwork, and you really from a fear from a very selfish level, you're putting yourself at risk, never mind the patient uh because you may be operating with bad information or without all the information you need.
1: I'd like to let you conclude at this point, take a few minutes and conclude however you like but my my question to you is, let's pretend you're in an environment that's good but you want to make it better, or you're in an environment and you're starting to learn because of articles like yours about human factors, engineering, what would be ways that you could start by becoming more of a champion of of these kinds of issues, you know, that the sinks are too far in the back, that I came up with something that a lot of our sinks aren't these kind of touchless sinks that you might Mm -hmm. see in like in a restaurant, and I think that that's a big problem, you know, what, what would be things you would want to share with the members of SCCM to take steps to improve things?
2: There's not an easy answer. I think the first thing I would encourage the listeners to do is to just start changing their mental model of looking at things. And if they go start back with the systems model and realize that this is not just a individual performance piece. There's a part that providers need to be accountable and perform up to their expectations, but that they're simply one part of a larger system. And no matter how good you are, that's not going to be enough to guarantee safety and that you need to understand the interactions between all those systems elements, that's a huge first step because I don't think as an industry we understand that. And a lot of our solutions fall short because of the lack of understanding. Other practical solutions, I think there's a growing body of accessible literature on how to start incorporating human factors into analyzing your, your problems in your workplace almost all of those start with having people who know what to look for sit back and watch how care is being provided. So if you want to improve hand-washing, what you do is bring both clinicians who can provide the clinical context, but ideally people who have some formal training in some one of the disciplines that comprise human factors to sit there and watch and say, well, wait a minute, what's going on? Because often we're so close to our work or we have this concept of this is the way it's always been done, I can't conceive of doing it any other way, that by getting those neutral eyes in there, they can point out things that we would never see. That's not to advocate, uh, oh, you need a huge consulting budget for human factors engineering. In fact, one of the things that's true for at least a lot of ICUs, but not certainly all, is that they're in larger areas where there's universities. And a lot of schools have... uh, A lot of universities have engineering programs where they do either industrial engineering or human factors engineering that potentially could be a resource. And I've actually been very successful in tapping into a local university to get essentially their intellectual content in a collaborative way. They love the opportunity to get into the clinical environment, and yet they can provide the content expertise that we don't have as clinicians. I would really encourage the audience to avoid simple solutions if it's sounds too good to be true. It probably is. There aren't any, I'm soundly convinced that the more I study the complexity of our healthcare environments, there is not a silver bullet. There's not a panacea. And again, if you can temper things and understand the context of care delivery, asking the question, if we do this, what might go wrong? If we introduce this new technology, how's it going to affect the people? How's it going to affect the tasks that are performed? what is the interaction with the environment, and what's the implications for the organizations? Just by going through that process, you can already start to change your mental model and make smarter decisions. But unfortunately, I don't think there's a, a, a easy answer to this. This is more of a lifetime of redesigning how we
1: do work. Well, and to, to try and encapsulate it a little bit, I guess, so if you're a, a unit director and you're told that you're either your Catheter-related bloodstream infection rate, or your ventilator-associated pneumonia rate, appears to be going up. And your response is, "Oh, I got to start, you know, writing the staff harder." Your answer would be, perhaps not. Perhaps you should take a step back and reassess where your system could be improved. Is that right? I
2: would go in and observe, you know, observe some of these things. Ask, okay, well, you know, central line infections is my understanding of bloodstream infections is it's almost bimodal. There's the infections associated with line placement, and then there's line maintenance issues. So first of all, you need to figure out what are you dealing with? Is it a insertion-related problem or a maintenance problem? Go watch some people place lines. Are they doing something that is inconsistent with the intended actions? That Then that's where maybe you need an educational reminder for people because you realize the way we're draping is incorrect or something. Um, but if you don't even have that information, it's hard to offer solutions. Look for ways of how can we design a better system. If the providers are having to leave the room three times to get materials, maybe creating a line cart that can be brought into the room during the placement of central line, so all the materials are there, people aren't going in and out of the room, breaking the sterile environment, you know, I'm brainstorming. But that's the ways that I would start by understanding what is actually going on and where are the failure points in that, or where's the suboptimal points. Where are you introducing risk? And then figure out, okay, how can we eliminate that risk?
1: We've been speaking today with Dr. Matthew C. Scanlon, and our topic has been patient safety, specifically on human factors engineering, from his article recently published in Critical Care Medicine entitled, Value of Human Factors to Medication and Patient Safety in the Intensive Care Unit. Thank you very much, Dr. Scanlon, for joining us today. Thank you for having me. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash eyecriticalcare for more information, as well as nearly five years of archived podcasts. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell.
0: The Paragon Critical Care Quality Implementation Program utilizes a combination of self-assessments, teleconferences, site visits, peer collaboration, consulting, and coaching to help hospitals develop high-functioning critical care teams. To transform your critical care units through participation in the Paragon program, ask to speak with the Paragon Critical Care Program Manager. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City. Practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.